Thank you again for coming. Appreciate it. We this morning are um, going to, uh, last time together we, we, we shifted from discipline one on the heart to now starting to look at discipline two on the home. And um, we're going to dig down deep into one passage this morning, um, eventually when we get together again here after small groups. Uh, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 6. It's a, it's a really important passage to look at in line with the trajectory of the rest of Scripture. Um, so we'll do that in just a little bit here. Um, before that, I want to remind you, uh, there is still time, if you have not um, signed up yet for the men's retreat, there's still time to do so. The men's retreat is um, two weekends from now, November 18th and 19th. It's one one night, overnight, up, into, up at Tonto Rim. And Yes, Michael? Well, this year was a little different because um, we were in. We didn't even plan it. It was planned by the other church, um, Northwest Community Church, and they invited us to be a part of it. So we didn't have any say on the date or even know when it was. We just offered it to the body. So next year, if we decide to do it again, which I believe that we are going to, I mean, we'll kind of see how things go. Um, but uh, we'll have we'll have a whole year's lead time. We'll know when the date is. We'll be able to get that to you much sooner so that you guys can plan and know better so that if you need to get off work or if it even works for you or not, you'll, you'll know much sooner. Yeah, the dates for, dates for that are already, I think, set. You might be able to just go to resolve.org and, and, and see that. Um, one of you high-tech guys can probably figure that out right now. I don't know. But that's in um, the end of June uh, next year. Uh, so, yeah. Now, um, so what I want to encourage you with the, with the men's retreat is um, to, to just get signed up for that. Um, as I've been reading through Jerry's book, um, who's going to be the speaker, Jerry Rag, um, it feels like we've been walking on the same path in regards to the heart and you need to be a godly man. Um, everything is bound up in your, your, spiritual character, your spiritual maturity and your character. If you are a godly man, um, almost anything can happen in terms of what God will do with your family and your leadership in the church. Um, it, it's a it's a perfect compliment, uh, and and it's and it's good to have somebody who's on the outside of who we are talk about the things that we love and talk about them in a way that's really helpful because it just says it in a different way um, from the, the lingo that we're in and and all of that. So. Um, I really want to encourage you. I mean, we don't have build in two weeks from now, and that was for a reason, so that if you are able to, you could take, you know, the, that weekend and be at result or uh, be at the men's retreat. So, um, if you have any concerns, like just not sure you can financially pull that off, um, we have no interest loans, right, Mark? That you can, uh, as long as you promise to pay back, um, you're you you can. Uh, Take advantage of those. We'll let you take as long as you need to pay back. Um, if you need a, just a scholarship, uh, would you just come let me know? Uh, we don't want that to be a reason that you can't do it. Okay? Um, so please talk to us about that. We would love to have you be a part of it. Tony? You know, I don't know. Um, Starts at 8. 8 p.m.? Is that what Smed said? Well, then it's true. The first, the first session. 
Okay, registration at five up there. Probably then get something to eat, and then the first. Then Jerry will speak at eight. So you don't need to necessarily be there right at five. I'm, I'm going to guess. We'll try to get some more details on that for you. But obviously, you want to be there at least by eight at the latest. So, um, yes, sir. You want to put together maybe some kind of list of email houses that people need rides. That's already taken care of in the registration part of it, I guess. Um, yeah. as, as you register, you say, I need a carpool, I, I need a ride, I can drive, I'm leaving at this time. I think that's all within there, and Cass kind of knows that. So, um, you know, you can, I'm sure you guys can, can ride with each other, and, and we'll, we'll make sure that that all gets taken care of. We would like to get, um, we would like to get a, a, a What's really encouraging is our church is smaller than theirs, and we have as many guys or more going than they do. But we would still like to get a few more because we've paid up to a certain number, and I think we need about 14 more. And then we would, we're paying for only the guys that are going. We won't be paying for empty spots. So we'd love for you guys to um, take advantage of that. That would help us out as well. Okay? Um, all right. Turn your notebook over to the back. We're going to fly through these this morning. <coughs> Just a brief... Review of the six disciplines and build uh, the things that we're trying the, the the spiritual leadership biblical disciplines we're trying to um, unite our lives around in this church as men so that um, uh, the church can be this can be strong the church can be what it needs to be um, as the men are strong and able to lead well and effectively um, it all begins with the heart <clears throat> you cannot um, neglect the inner man. The inner person of the heart, that's you. That's what the heart means in scripture. It's the soul. Uh, it's who you are inwardly speaking before God. Uh, the heart continues on after you die. The inner man continues on after you die. The body is, is, a, is a part of it. It encases it, uh, surrounds it with members, bodily members. But the inner man is who you are inwardly speaking. You must shepherd that because as a Christian... You are not yet glorified. You are not yet in an unmixed condition of perfection and holiness. I don't know if you didn't notice that or not yet, but I just want to point out the obvious. If you don't, just go home, and if you're married, ask your wife. Um, she can help you on this. Um, but anyway, you, you until then, um, in heaven, there's not a need to shepherd your heart. Um, because you are everything you are supposed to be. You think everything you're supposed to think. You do everything you're supposed to do. Uh, in this unmixed or in this mixed condition we're in now, you must diligently watch over your inner man. Now, before you were in Christ, you had a, an unmixed condition, and it was all bad, all bad. There was no good anywhere, and there was no desire to shepherd your heart away from what you were to something new that you should be. But now, God has equipped your inner man. He's given you a new inner man. There's new desires. There's new capabilities. There's new equipping from him in that new man to shepherd yourself. And you do that primarily with the Word of God. And you're not just going to the Word of God to get the instruction manual for living. Okay? You don't go to it like it's a manual for your Blu-ray. Okay? You go to it because it reveals primarily a person. And your inner man, your inner person must meet with the person who is God. Right? And that is where he has revealed himself most clearly. You must meet with him. 
We've got a seat up here, I know, if you want. And Rich, don't forget to get a handout from this morning, too. And there's another seat over here. Okay. So anyway, everybody's taking care of you. Um, so it all begins with the heart. You do that, you shepherd your heart, and everything else from there flows. Okay, that's the well. That's the spring out of which everything in life flows, Proverbs 4. Okay? The first place of impact that that needs to um, connect with is discipline to the home, your household relationships, the people that you live with, your parents, your, your children, your wife, your roommates. That's the first place that needs to be impacted by the fact that you have brought your heart before God in his word to draw near to him, to love him, to worship him, to enjoy him, to grow in your fear of him. Um, you need to impact those people first. You'll see that here, that this is the very heart of God and has been all throughout Scripture. Um, You do that. Don't play leapfrog over your heart. Don't play leapfrog over your family, and you are set up well for discipline three. You are now ready to step into the lives of people outside of your home, in the church, or even outside the church in evangelism. Um, You will have a life that is full of integrity because your heart loves God, your heart loves the Word of God, Um, Your heart is caring for the people. They are impacted by the aroma of the gospel coming off of you in your home. And when people outside of your home meet you, they will be impacted by a man of integrity. Okay? You do that, um, you're going to find yourself ready for discipline four to measure yourself by the qualifications in Scripture, primarily for build the qualification for deacons, but also elder. We want to set those qualifications in front of you. Um, to set them up as a target to aim for, to aspire, to prayerfully aspire. Say, God, make me a qualified man. I've never thought about maybe ever being a qualified man in terms of a deacon or an elder. But God, I'm going to pray about it now. Why would he not want you to aspire to that? And by the way, every qualification listed out for an elder is a qualification, a character qualification that every Christian must have. It's not just elders who are supposed to be above reproach. Philippians 2. Let me read it to you. Sorry, forgot where Philippians was for a moment. So that you'll uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Blameless and above reproach. Two words used to describe an elder must be blameless. An elder must be above reproach. So is it only elders who are supposed to be above reproach? No. All of us as children of of God adopted by him are to be above reproach. Who should be leading in what it means to be above reproach? Elders. But all of you are to be above reproach. You can do this on every single qualification for an elder. So aim for it, prayerfully so. Ask God to work in your life um, in such a way that you would be drawn towards those qualifications. Discipline five is the hermeneutic, uh, the way of interpreting scripture. We want to set that before you and introduce that to you um, here at Grace Bible Church early on um, in your being exhorted to be a godly man. Part of that means that you need to be able to handle the scriptures accurately and well. Um, you need to be able to understand when you're in Mosaic Law, what implication does that have for me as a Christian today? You need to understand how to handle the Old Testament. You need to be able to understand how to handle wisdom literature. You need to be able to 
Understand how to handle prophetic literature. Do you do something different when you get to prophetic literature? Do you do something different when you get to Revelation? Do you do something different when you read Genesis 1? How do we handle God's word? And we're going to expose you guys to that at the end. And then lastly, um, Discipline 6 is what this church is all about, what Grace Bible Church is all about. We have a biblical vision and a gospel purpose. We're going to put the Bible in front of us and set our sights on it. Primarily, when you see the Bible and read the Bible, the, a message of the Bible, the message of the Bible could be summarized with the three tri, with the triad that, that we have. Does it catch everything in the Bible? Of course not, but it, it's really helpful. The glory of God in the cross of Christ for a transformed life by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a Trinitarian vision of the Bible. We want to put that in front of us. That then motivates us to a gospel purpose. Um, to draw in, to build up, and to send out. Tomorrow we're going to hit Acts 1.8. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. That's the gospel purpose. Uh, To draw in with the gospel, to be built up with the gospel, to be sent out with the gospel. Okay? That's what we're about as build. So that needs to be something that in the middle of the night when your son comes and says, Dad, you just wake up the heart, the home, ministry. Okay? Just comes out all the time. All right? All right, let's take a break now. Let's go to do our small groups. So your homework. You're going to select three different passages of Scripture over the next two weeks of your Bible reading. Actually, you know what? It'll be over the next month because we don't have build in two weeks. I think the next time we have it is December what? December 3rd, right here. So it's like the next three weeks or whatever it is. Actually, that is a month away, isn't it? Wow. Okay. So do this just with three passages of scripture over the next um, four weeks. You're going to write three different paragraphs on each different passage of scripture you uh, find. Yes, sir. Are these directions in our It's on the blue sheet. Blue sheet is your homework. Okay? So take a look at your blue sheet for just a moment. Paragraph A. You're going to write a paragraph about what this passage reveals to you about the nature or character of God. That's something you need to be watching for all the time when you read, because that's what we're, we're after. We want to make sure that as we're reading the Bible, we're not, just, we're not missing the fact that this is saying something about who God is. Either directly, it might say, God, you are, and it'll tell you, or it might, through the course of his sovereignty as he's behind the scenes, behind the scenes, quote-unquote, okay, It'll reveal something else about him indirectly. So you want to be watching for that. You're going to write a paragraph about whatever passage of scripture you're in. And you're going to write that paragraph. Paragraph B then. Write a paragraph about how your heart is interacting with God who is revealed there. One of the best ways you can do that is just to write out a prayer to God in paragraph B about what you just saw in paragraph 1 or what you just wrote in paragraph 1. God... Thank you that you are a God who's in control of all affairs, that even when things look bleak, I know and I can count on that you are, you know, whatever it is, you write it out. You get your heart to engage with God on that. And then paragraph C, the third paragraph, share what impact this passage from God's word is having on you with someone in your home. Tell somebody in your family, in your household, about what you just did, what you just saw. Okay? I encourage you on on like passage one, take an Old Testament passage and try to try to take three different passages in three different places. If you're reading through Acts right now, don't do Acts chapter four as paragraph one, Acts chapter five as paragraph two, and Acts chapter 
6, that's paragraph 3 or whatever. Try to find the spots in different places of the Bible so that you can discipline yourself and, and, and be, okay, now I'm in the Old Testament. How do I do this? And do the best you can, okay? Do you guys understand that homework? Three different passages and three different paragraphs for each of the three different passages, okay? And so helping you to practice discipline one and two, all right? All right, take out your, um, yes? Oh, yeah, the third one's on the back side, right? So you got paragraph one, paragraph two, and three on the back. Yes? I'm not, any questions on from that table over there? I completely ignore. Bad company corrupts good morals. Scripture will come to life right before your eyes in this room. All right, we're going to be talking about Discipline 1 on the heart and Discipline 2 on the home from Deuteronomy 6. Let's go there, please. Turn there with me. We're going to cover a lot this morning. This is a a rich passage, and we're going to walk forward in our Bibles a little bit as well. I'm going to read the verses 1 to 9. We're going to pray, and we're going to jump in. Here's verses 1 to 9 of Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, Moses says, Israel, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray. Father, would you please encourage us this morning by what we see in your word. I pray that you would lift these men up um, by your spirit, in your strength, and comfort them. Remind them of uh, how deep... um, And how far-reaching the blood of Christ goes. Uh, It covers every sin. And where we fail in our shepherding in our homes, Lord, your blood uh, of your Son is there too to cleanse us and to make us new um, and to renew us in our minds as we walk in obedience to you. God, I pray that you would equip them and, and care for them directly from your word, Lord. Even take this study here, and we want this to be Um, a tool that draws us nearer to you in worship and and in love, also that we might more faithfully walk after you and obey you. We need you desperately, and we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me summarize the book for you with a quote from uh, Thompson. God appears in a strong covenantal setting here in Deuteronomy. That's what it's all about. He's the covenantal God. He's the great king. He's the Lord of the covenant. The Mosaic covenant portrays God as the great king who entered into a treaty or a covenant with Israel 
so that he became their God and they his people. Now, that's, that's helpful, but it's also, it, it might say some things that we don't, that we might um, want to clarify. So I'm going to do, I'm going to draw something here on the board. Let's say this over here is creation. Now, obviously, God existed prior to this, right? But um, let's say right here, as we look at the, the Bible storyline that's represented with this line across here, let's say right here is um, the Abrahamic covenant, the, the promise, the covenant that God made um, with Abraham. Let's say it starts here, and um, it is represented in Scripture as doing this. Okay? It doesn't have an end. It continues on. Right? Here's what we know. That this is this is all of grace. Okay? It is um, justification on the basis of what? By faith. In Genesis 15, Abraham believed and God reckoned it as righteousness. Right? And so grace is something that is a part of this. Uh, has always been there before. God has never, ever since the fall, not been a God of grace. It continues on. Now we're in Deuteronomy. We're primarily in the Mosaic Covenant. How does that fit in? Like this. The Mosaic Covenant is called, in, in many ways, a, a subsidiary covenant. That means it's one that's underneath another one. Notice it has a beginning, okay, and then it has an end. It existed for a time within God's redemptive work and plan and program that He was doing, right? He revealed, and He didn't align it here with Abraham because Abraham lived all of his life, and Jacob lived all of his life, Isaac lived all of his life, Jacob lived all of his life, and they lived 400 years before the Mosaic Covenant ever even came. Right? Then God takes them out of Israel, or out of Egypt, and he takes them to the mountain, and he establishes a covenant with them. This covenant, primarily, with all of its 600-plus rules and laws, was where God said, I, I promised that you would be my people. That would make you into a great nation. Now, I'm going to particularly set you apart from all of the other people. And what's going to primarily set you apart are all of my rules, my regulations. You obey these regulations, and you will be a holy people. You will, you will stand out. There will be no other nation like you. Right? Uh, just for reference sake, um, I want to make sure this keeps going so you can see that we're not done yet. <laughs> and to show that we're still in it. <clears throat> the law of Christ, right? Um, that's probably not the best way to represent it. Sorry. It picked right up where Mosaic law left off. But this is a a rigid separation. Ephesians two talks about that. Okay. We live 
That's Marxism. That's where we live. We don't live here. This wasn't designed for you. Designed for another people. This is designed for us. Now, um, there are lots of things in common. There are lots of things different. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Okay? But just so you can kind of see where this fits in. Here's Deuteronomy 6. Reaffirming this covenant. Okay? Does that make sense? There's an outline of the book for you there so you can kind of see where Deuteronomy 6 falls in. It falls into the covenant life section of the book. Um, let me talk about the blazing center here in verse 4 because that's basically where we're going to start. Um, this has been a, a slow getting started winter, fall, winter. We haven't even turned our heat on in our house yet. I don't know, after t- last night we might think about that. Um, but this is probably the way that it is in your house. Um, the, the air coming out of the vents that's nearest to the furnace is what kind of air? It's the hottest air. And I don't know why, but it's the laundry room in my house. How efficient is that? And my bedroom is the farthest room away. Um, so, uh, but, but you know, that's the case. The further the vents are away from the blazing furnace, then the colder the room is, right? And I think that's somewhat illustrative of what Moses is trying to get across here um, to Israel, spiritually speaking. The closer that Israel stays to God, the warmer their affection will be. The warmer their love will be, the warmer their obedience to him will be. Israel has to stay close to its blazing center, its furnace, who is God. Um, So this here is a call to Israel to not drift from their source of heat. They will become cold toward God if they do drift. They need to stay warm in their love for him. Verse 4 is called the Shema, right? Which is from the Hebrew word to hear. And it's in verse 4 there, the very first word, hear, O Israel. Now, the word hear always includes with it the intent to live under what you hear. Okay, it's all like, yeah, 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 I heard what you said. That's not hearing in the way the Bible says to hear, especially in the Old Testament. It's to hear with the intent to then order all of your life under what was said, what you heard. Okay, This is how the whole call begins. Hear with the intent to obey me, Israel. Um, Merrill says to hear in Hebrew lexicography is tantamount to obey, especially in covenant contexts such as this. That is, to hear God without putting into effect the command is actually to not hear him at all. Do you understand? That's what is built into this word. And so this hearing with the intent to obey, it's in light of all that God has done for them and the covenant that God has made with them because what has God done? God has redeemed them from Egypt with a strong and mighty hand and God has made a covenant with them in the wilderness and on the basis of that, God says now, hear me with the intent of obeying me, Israel. So don't forget, before they ever got here, Everything that happened to them on this side of the line was grace towards them. You've been enslaved for 400 years. You know what? You actually deserve it. You're going to see in a moment. But I will come and I'll hear your cries. I'll have pity on you. And I will, out of grace, deliver you. Okay? Now, hear me with the intent to obey. 
So I want you to understand that was prior to, the, here's the point. Mosaic law was never given, never given, never given. I want to say it one more time. It was never given so that they might clean up their lives so that God would then take a notice. Never. Did the Jews do that with the law? Yes. But it was never God's intent that they would do it that way. That was never the way he did it. It was always by grace. And then the covenant came. You understand? Here with the intent to obey because I've been gracious and I've delivered you. You're mine. Okay? I paid the price to get you out. So, to hear is to listen closely for the purpose of obedience. They must become determined to know what God has said in order to conform their beliefs and their behavior accordingly. Um, and by the way, we're still under the same principle in the New Testament. Let me give an example. James chapter 1, verse 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a what? Doer. He is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Law of what? Liberty? So you see, here with the intent to do. Here with the intent to do, Israel, you just saw something that's continuous in Scripture. Continuity. What's, con what's continuous? God says, I have been gracious to you. I have redeemed you. Hear me with the intent to obey, Israel. I have been gracious to you in the cross of my son. Hear me with the intent of obeying me. Something's never changed in Scripture. Lots of things change big time in Scripture. Bring me a one-year-old calf and slaughter it. And don't glean your fields to the end. Save that for the sojourner. Here, don't see any of that. Something's changed radically. Okay, do you understand? So God, in, so what do we see? God's grace and his desire for his people to obey him, that never changes. Okay? The actual rules that he uses to regulate them change. Okay? Yeah? So what were the sacrifices accomplishing in the, in the Mosaic they, they were... They were, um, they were pictures that would make them anticipate. I mean, because you would think about it this way. You would bring your animal to sacrifice. You would stand there and you would hold your hand on the head. And you would slit its throat and you would watch its life leave its body. And you would be saying to the priest who would be there at the, at the tent or at the, at the temple, I, I have sinned. This is what my sin is, and he would be listening to you, and he would be assessing: Is this? A, are you genuine about this? What's going? You know, he, he, that was part of his job to shepherd the moment. And you would, he would say, on the basis of this, God says you are forgiven. And you would walk away from that, and on the way back to your home, you would sin against your wife again. And you'd be like, I just, I just need to keep coming back with another animal. There's got to be. I'm forgiven, but something's got to happen that's better than this. So it was primarily a picture. It's anticipatory. Not really an effectual no. thing that it accomplished. Because we know that the blood of bulls and goats never take away sin. And yet, at the same time, um, 
God makes it clear in Leviticus that you are forgiven. He states that. So here's what we know. Here's the cross. Here's the sacrifice of Christ, right? All of the other sacrifices here, the, the worshiper had to, by faith, trust that this sacrifice was somehow going to anticipate a better sacrifice to come, right? And he and God says, you are forgiven. And to the Old Testament worshiper, you are forgiven. And they would walk away believing, I'm forgiven. But there's got to be something that's going to be better. We live over on this side, right? And though we don't have that aspect of the animal sacrifice, obviously, we, by faith, trust that we are forgiven, right? Right? We're forgiven, and what do we do? By faith, we look back. Um, so, they're anticipating, they're looking forward. Sorry, one other question. Yeah, it's great. Um, so, did the Mosaic Covenant and the obedience thereto, did that bless the nation or both the nation or the physical descendants of Abraham and individuals within it, or was it primarily for the, the nation as a group? Uh, or did, I, it have, did it have individual personal application yeah. as well? Because I heard you say earlier that if you do this, you will be the greatest people you know, that's ever been on the earth, which sounds like it's a group thing. Yeah. I think it's definitely both. Um, there, this is a this is an interesting group of people because you can be in this covenant, but actually not be in this covenant. You can be doing all of these things but not be living by faith, and therefore not be a a true descendant of Abraham. But he says, obviously personally, if you are going to be trusting in me by faith to be declared righteous and you obey me, there's great blessing for you personally. But God's intent with this covenant was to mark out a national group of people also. Um, and that is was the intent, too. It was, it was both. And Eric? Are we going to sacrifice again? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you uh, have a hermeneutic that believes that uh, when you get to a prophetic passage, like Ezekiel, it appears that when Christ comes and sets up his kingdom, that there will be sacrifices again. And I, one of the greatest um, uh, that I, I've been rebuked for um, by my dear um, covenantal brothers is that how offensive. The ultimate sacrifice has come. And he, it's offensive to think that an animal could be called in to, to be sacrificed again after this great sacrifice. And I just asked the question, well, and we're going to see this in Acts. You know, in Acts 3, the guys are going to the temple. And somehow what was going on in the temple, nothing comes out on the pages that was offensive to them. Sacrifices were going on every day in the temple. After Pentecost. And so if it wasn't offensive to them there, I, d, d, how did they see them? I think they would have saw them as, oh my goodness, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
you don't see them. The point of Acts is not to go in and storm the temple and say, Stop these hideous sacrifices. Don't you understand? The Lamb of God has come. He's taken away the sin of the world. He didn't do that. So we have actually on the pages of Scripture where believers live, where there are some sacrifices taking place in their day. And, the, of course, they're not out. We don't know. Paul was trying to, at, at different points, participated in vows. Things that were under, he was in, these apostles are in a very interesting time period that you and I are not. Uh, where they're kind of living and back, shifting back and forth between two worlds of, of regulation. And um, so it's not, to me, because of like Acts chapter 2 or 3 in the early chapters, it's not uncommon to think, well, there might be sacrifices again and actual believers after the cross wouldn't be offended by it. They're not offended by it in the early pages of Acts. Rich? That's during the, the reign Yeah, that's the millennial kingdom, in, in my opinion, our opinion, with the way we look at Scripture. So we'll, we'll get into that some more. Let's, let's keep moving on if we can, okay? All right, so Deuteronomy 6, at the end of verse 4, is probably the most potent, um, succinct summary of God who redeemed this people up to this point in the Bible. Really, Deuteronomy 6... You did that question on purpose, didn't you? It was Josh. I did. Jordan, thank you. Yeah. What scripture was what? Um, I, I don't know the exact chapter. I'm going to say Ezekiel 48. Somebody will have to confirm. What? 46. Okay, Ezekiel 46. Thank you. Um, it's almost like at, at Deuteronomy 6, the last half of verse 4, it's almost like somebody would say to Moses, Moses, how would you summarize God this far in the Bible so far? What is he like? Well, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Um, take this important God out of their midst. They grow cold in the wilderness. Take God out of their midst once they're even in the promised land. This God, surrounded by all of the false gods of the nations, and they instantly, instantly become cold. But as long as they stay near to this God, our God, the Lord is one God, whether they're in the wilderness or whether they're in the promised land, there's hope for them. Their, their love can be a, a heated love for God. Now, there's two possible translations for the last part of verse 4 here. It could be the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's the New American Standard. That's the NIV, the ESV, the New King James Version. Or it might possibly be translated the Lord our God is one Lord. Um, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. Um, to say it the way that you and I have it in our translations emphasizes it stresses the uniqueness of God the exclusivity of Yahweh as Israel's God. Yahweh is our God, and he is the one and only Yahweh. To say it the second way is to say the unity or the wholeness of Yahweh. He, he's not a schizophrenic being. He is united in his being, and, and clearly I think the ideas here overlap. The Lord is indeed, Yahweh is indeed one united being, but he is the only true Yahweh for Israel. And the quote there from Macintosh is, all of the grammatical possibilities point in the same direction. They point to the uniqueness of Yahweh, the supremacy of Yahweh, the God of Israel. The unity of God is stressed, but also God's distance from all the other invented deities of the nations is stressed. That's the idea. 
this God is not the God of anybody else, like anybody else's gods. He's not their God. He's our God. He's the only God. Why is this important to say to the people at this moment? Why is this important to say to Israel out in the wilderness? Just think with me on the importance of this in this context. What is behind them? This is the second generation in the wilderness. They're on the plains of Moab. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land. What's behind them? It's this. The place that God's people have been for the last 400 years was a nation that had many, many gods. Right? Now, I want you to see what God's commentary is on what he found when he went to Egypt. You have to turn to Ezekiel chapter 20. If you don't read the book of Ezekiel, you miss some really important things. You've got to read your Bible, guys. All of it. Ezekiel 20, verse 5. The rest of your life, you have to read all of it. Here's what God says he found when he went to Egypt. Let's, let's see. Ezekiel 20, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am Yahweh your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. I said to them, on that day when I found them, what did he say to them? Cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. What did God find when he went and looked at Israel and Egypt? What are you doing with all these idols? Get rid of them. But they rebelled against me. When did they rebel against him? What's the context? In Egypt. But they rebelled against me, and they were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them. When? To accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. This is a crucial piece of passage to help you round out what was going on in Exodus. God saying, get rid of your idols. And what they say? I don't think so. God says, you're done. I'm just going to pour out my wrath on you now in Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, verse 9, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived and in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and I brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes. What is that? Right here, guys. Mosaic law. I gave them that. I gave them my statutes. Um, uh, and informed them of my ordinances, by which if a man observes, then he will live. Also, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They rebelled against me in Egypt. Now they're rebelling against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes and they rejected my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbath they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. But I acted for the sake of my name. Praise God that he always acts on the basis of his own character and his own reputation and puts that as what is at stake and not you or me or what we do or what we don't do. Right? Etc. You can see that there. But that's what he found when he went to. That's what's behind them. You guys were in Egypt and you didn't get rid of your idols. Do you guys remember Joshua 24? Uh, turn there real quick. Just next book to the right of, of 
of Deuteronomy, Joshua 24, what's in front of them? Joshua's trying to tell them. Well, actually, they get into the land and what was behind them is still, they've carried with them. Joshua 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him, Joshua says, in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. You know what he's saying? We've conquered the land. We're now in the land. We're not on the plains of Moab anymore. We're about to get in the land. We're in the land. We did it. Get rid of all those gods that you've been carrying, not just since Egypt, but even before that, when your father Abraham was beyond the river. You still have those gods too. Why is he saying Yahweh is your our God? He's the only one. Why is he saying this on the plains of Moab? If there was ever a people that needed to hear this and be confronted with this reality over and over and over, it was Israel, right? And what's in front of them? Guess where you're about to go. The place that God's people are about to go to is full of Baals, lords, gods. So Israel's blazing center could not be more distinct from them, unique from them, unlike them, uh, what surrounds them from behind and from uh, in front of them. No God anywhere had ever come to a nation like this and separated that nation out from another nation and performed judgment and miracles like he did against the evil host nation, powerfully delivering them and redeeming his people like he did. Nobody's ever done anything like this. This God is completely set apart and unique. Back to Deuteronomy 6. If Israel will stay near to this God, they have hope. And if they don't, they're done. Now let's talk about discipline one on the heart, because now he's ready to move to that. You see that? Discipline one the heart, Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 and 6. Are you ready? Here's the question. God just sets all of that out in verse 4. What is the first thing on his mind? What is the first thing on God's mind after saying, I'm it. I am your God. I am one God. I am, I am not schizophrenic. I'm not anything like the gods of the nations. Here's, I, here's, here's who I am, and I am your God. Now, here's what's on my mind from that. What's on his mind? Love me. Love me. Love from his people is what is on his mind. And it is love from the inner man. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Love that consumes the whole inner being, the whole inner man. This is totally unique. The gods of Egypt never demanded this of their worshipers. The gods of the Amorites didn't, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Hittites. They never communicated such a request like this to their devotees. Okay. In fact, no ruler ever, uh, human ruler requires this of his subjects. Can you imagine a president or a king saying, here's the first thing you got to do. You need to love me. We just don't do that. It's foreign. Did, um, uh, what's his name? Matthew Henry said, did ever any prince make a law that his subject should love him? Yet such is the condescension of the divine grace that this has made the first and the great commandment of God's law that we love him that we perform all of the parts of our duty to him from a principle of love. Now, what does he mean when he says, love me with all your heart, soul, and strength? What, what's God intending to do here? Let me tell you what his intent is not. His intent is not to splice you into three sections 
and say, now love me from those three sections. In other words, he doesn't say, um, go over here where your heart is and then love me with all of that over there and then go run over here to this other place where your soul is and love me with all of that and then go find your strength and wherever you find it, gather it all up and love me from there with all of your strength. That's not what he's doing. He's not trying to divide man up into pieces. Actually, he's doing just the opposite. He's trying to gather man up into one big heap, and he's just using three different ways to describe man. From your inner being, from your spirit, your soul, um, from what your energy and your strength is. He's got one point to make, not three. Because if you can get the man at the inner being level, you've got the man, right? Strength, according to Macintosh, is not so much a person's physical power as his intensity. God wants earnestness in a person's love. He desires not merely that we possess a faith or love, but that our faith or love should possess us. So here's a question I have for you guys. See how well you um, understand that you're influenced by your Bible and not systematic theologians. When you think of Mosaic Law, Is love for God the first thing that comes to your mind? Then you're not thinking biblically yet. Because when you think of Mosaic Law, you should think what the Bible thinks about Mosaic Law. And the Bible says, according to God, God is revealing to us, I'm, I'm it for you, Israel, and here's the thing I want. Love me. Why don't we think that? Because we see abuses of what men do. I would think it's rules and we've got to be Yeah. The last thing we think of is that. It's, and it's portrayed to us that way. Be more influenced by what the Bible says about it than what men in the Bible wrongly think about it and, and people outside the Bible think wrongly about it. Mark. Don't we, don't we like the, uh, the uh, linearity of Mosaic law is wrong. We're under a new, a new law, Christ's law. Yeah. Whether it's true or not, like yeah, it, it, one of the dangers of being drawing the, the hermeneutical conviction that Mosaic Law is done is that we may neglect it. And you'll lose something if you don't pay attention to Mosaic Law. And I'm not talking about in terms of trying to bind yourself to its regulations, but I'm saying just what we just found out. Why is it beneficial for us to read Mosaic Law? Because we see something of the nature of God. Love me! Love me! Oh, but Mosaic Law is not for me. Well, you know what? It is for you in the sense that you better see that when you read Mosaic Law. You need to see that about your God. Your God had kids over here. He's got kids over here. You live with this family over here. But don't you want to see something of your dad back here? Dad, what, what, was, it, what was it like when you raised them up? Right? So if we compare that to Ephesians, would Mosaic Law be like... Four, five, and six. Four, five. You mean commandments? Four, five, and six. Um, no, Ephesians. Four, five, oh. And six. Uh, say the question again, then. If we compare the Mosaic covenant and the six hundred and thirteen laws, or whatever, but we took it from creation through that and looked at grace and justification by faith in the Abrahamic covenant, then the Mosaic covenant would correspond to. Yeah. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. I think that's a, a fair. Um, do you guys understand? Like when you read Paul's letters, you see, here's what we believe. And now here's on the basis of what we believe. Here's how we live. 
Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Here's what we believe, and now here's how we live. And, um, you know, that, that's a fair description. The Mosaic Law is primarily telling Israel how to live on the basis of what they've seen and what they believe about him. That's not a bad um, assessment of that. Yeah. So, we want to think about that. We want to think about love. Let me give you um, an illustration. The closest contemporary cultural covenant idea that I can think of for us um, to put into our minds is the, is the marriage covenant. I've done this over and over. I've stood before a man and a woman, and um, I have helped them think through their vows, the rules that they're going to live by in front of each other, before each other. Okay, They pledge to keep these vows. I say, will you? Will you? Will you? Will you? Will you do this? Will you do that? Will you not do this? Will you not do that? And you know what they say? They say, I will. I will. We're entering into a covenant together. I will. I will. You know, it, it never crosses my mind in that moment that this is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. And you know, I've never heard any bride say to me, you know, this is really offensive. Just, this is just all about do's and don'ts here. Why does a bride never think that way? Because she is so overwhelmed by love. You see, love automatically makes rules. Like, piece of cake, I'll do anything. I love you. I'll do anything. Just say it. And I do. I can say anything up there and they would do it. Because they love each other. <laughs> so much. No. <laughs> We'll find out who's next. No. So this command from God to love God, this says something about the kind of God that he is. What he wants his people's attitude toward him to be. Has that changed? Has that changed at all? Can I remind you of John 14, verse 21? Jesus speaking to his disciples on his last night with them. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and we will disclose and will disclose myself to him. Now Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us, but not to the world? Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Um, Macintosh quote, Jesus would later insist in John 14 that his disciples, <laughs> uh, to love them with um, all of, uh, and obey him. His disciples could hardly have missed the point of the statement in which Jesus insisted on the same devotion that Israel had been commanded to give Yahweh. They wouldn't have missed this. This is what God said in the Old Testament. In Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God, Jesus says, with all your heart, all your soul, your mind, your strength. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, Paul says, he is to be accursed. At the end of Ephesians 6, 6, 24, he says, those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love, we are to love him with an incorruptible love. And go to John 21. I love this. One of my favorite passages, last chapter of John, John 21, verse 15. You know the story, 
resurrected Jesus goes and he finds the, the apostles and he find, primarily finds Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples. And Peter said, I'm going fishing. I'm, I'm going fishing. That's basically Peter saying, you know what? I'm going to go back to what I was before Christ came into my life. I, I have blown it so badly. I'm going back to what I was. So here's the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, seeking Peter out. And in verse 15, you know this. So when they had finished breakfast, right? Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, are you going to stop being so foolish now? Will you promise to do better from here on out, Peter? Do you re- will you make greater resolves from here on out? Peter, will you please get some accountability? You need an accountability partner. That's what you need. Now, I don't want to diminish any of those things. Those are all, can be very important things. They're not primary. But we can talk like they're primary. They're not the primary thing. What's the primary thing on, on, on Jesus' mind? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Why is he saying that? It's all he can say. God hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. The foundation of our relationship with Jesus from our side, guys, on from our side, what our responsibility is, is love. We need to love God. We love him from the heart. And you know what love does? Love ensures obedience. Do you want to be more obedient? Do you want to be more obedient to Jesus Christ? Where do you start? What do you start with? Cultivate your love for Jesus Christ. If you get that, you'll get the obedience. If you skip cultivating a love for obedience and just put a bunch of rules in front of you from Jesus, how well do you think you're going to do? You might do them, but it'll be drudgery. Love him and obedience comes, guys. Love him and obedience comes. Think about it as a father. Can you imagine your son saying to you, I'll do it, but I don't like you. Thank you, because all that matters to me is just that you obey me. That's what matters to me. Now, you're not happy with that at all as a dad, are you? Rather, it's to hear your son say, I love you, Daddy. What did you want me to do? I'll do it. Back to Deuteronomy 6. God's people, Israel, who are warmed by drawing close to this furnace they have, who is Yahweh, this heat, they discover that God has actually provided for them a means by which their love for God might be kept up so that their love of God might be maintained so that their love for God might actually be promoted and nurtured so that their love for him will not go undergo decay look at verse 6 what has God given to them? these words these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart and notice where they have to be first guys They have to be advanced where? Where do they have to find their resting and dwelling place to be? The inner man. God's intent way back then and still in Christ has been this. 
Love for God must move towards God's word in order to bring it to the heart of the believer. This has never changed. This has never changed. Jesus made this clear in, in his parable on the soils in Luke 8. So let me read it for you. Just listen to this. Write down Luke 8, 9 to 15, and I'll read it to you. Luke 8, 9 to 15. You remember this? Uh, those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. The sower comes and sows word. What does the devil know is going on? He's read Deuteronomy 6. God made this word and he wants it to be on their hearts. I, here's what I'm going to do. As soon as the word comes out, I'm going to get it so that they can't put it on their hearts. The devil knows what he's doing. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. And they hold it fast and they bear fruit with perseverance. The word gets to the heart and they hold it fast. They're obedient. They're faithful. When raised Jesus in Luke 24 was with his two apostles or disciples walking along the road to Emmaus, they're like, weren't our hearts burning within us when he was talking to us? That's what happens. The heart burns when the word of God is there. Hebrews 4, we saw this. You remember that? Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active. And what can it do? It can judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Henry says, God's word must be laid up on our heart that our thoughts may be daily conversant with them and employed about them and thereby the whole soul may be brought to abide and act under the influence and impression of those words. This immediately follows upon the law of loving God with all your heart for those that do so will lay up his word in their hearts both as an evidence and effect of that love and as a means to preserve and increase it. He that loves God loves his Bible. I like that. Not because the Bible equals God, right? The Bible is his means by which we get him in greatest clarity. And this is what Discipline 1 and Build is all about. A spiritual leader in his home, a spiritual leader in the church is someone who constantly brings his heart to the word of God so that God might graciously reveal himself through those words The spiritual leader's love for God then gets fanned into a flame there and it turns the spiritual leader back again to the very words that he's at so that he might love God, so his love for God might be guided then into proper expressions of obedience to God. Every single believer, every Christian is called to this. And the leaders in the church must be well-disciplined men to be an example for the rest. You need to be that well-disciplined man in this area and you need to be it in your home. And guys, please set this up and prayerfully aspire to this uh, for the church. The church needs men like you. Who's going who's gonna, to... These elders aren't going to be here forever. And no, this church wasn't planted just so that it would last as long as the generation of elders that are currently running it run it. Who's going to take it Next. If it's not from among you, I don't know who it is. Pray. Pray. Set your life in front of... Take it out of your hands. Your life is not your own. Set it in front of God and say, I've lived my life thinking that I'm going to be this kind of a Christian man. Maybe God, I've been thinking too small. Maybe you actually want me to be an elder someday. So God, my life belongs to you. I acknowledge that. Do with me what you want.
And then we talk about the home. Back in Deuteronomy 6, verse 7. Watch this. The home. In Israel, these words had to advance beyond just the man, beyond just the husband, beyond just the father. It had to advance into his home, to his wife and his children. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Um, Teach them diligently. Frequently, um, Peabody says, frequently repeat these things to them. Try all ways of instilling them into their minds, these words. Make these words pierce into their hearts as in sharpening a knife. It is turned first on this side, then on that side. On this side, then on that side. This this word here for teach them diligently is a very interesting one. It's either the idea of sharpening or it's the idea of engraving. Either way, it's talking about a knife or a chisel or something sharp. And something that needs something sharp to be able to make its point on it. Okay? And it's continually, do this over and over and over and over. Do it diligently. Um, the next quote there from Merrill is, the image is that of an engraver of a, of a monument who takes a hammer and chisel in hand and with painstaking care he etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. The sheer labor of such a task is daunting indeed, but once done, the message is there to stay. By God's grace, this is what God is saying to Israel. The man of the home was to teach diligently so that God might etch his words into the hearts of those who are in the home. So how would we summarize this so far? Here's God's intent. Here's God's intent for Israel. It was that they were to come into direct contact with Yahweh, their God, in and through his words, and those words were to be on their heart. And, and as they were on their heart, they would flow forth in, expre- in expressions of obedience. And then those precious words were to be advanced into the household of the Israelite. Can you imagine what that nation would have looked like? That would have been a very different nation in the Fertile Crescent. But that's not where he ends. He says, um, you are... You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. Let's take those two first. Israel was, upon any occasion, within their home or outside their home, impressed the word of God on their children or those who are in their home. It's occasions of inactivity where you might be sitting in your home and occasions of activity where you might be walking outside of your home. When you lie down and when you rise up. The last part of verse 7. What is that? When you lie down and when you rise up. At the end of your day, at the beginning of your day, or if you're a Jew, actually at the beginning of the day is when you lie down and the next day starts. Your day just starts with sleep. Okay? Regardless, the point is the bookends of your day are what? Israel. Israel, the bookends of your day are to be my words, being advanced into the lives of everybody in your home. I like this. I think Macintosh and Spurgeon caught the heart behind this. Oh, wait, to, to go even further, I'm sorry, verse, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, verses 8 and 9. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Um, I think this is, I think the guys, I think they were supposed to do this literally. They had little boxes, right, that hung between their, on their foreheads, and they would have the Shema on it. And so wherever they would look out into the world, it would be like, this thing's in my eyes. And they have these tassels on their garments and strapped leather stuff on their hands that would have verses on them 
words about Yahweh on them. And, and so you'd be grabbing something and be constantly there on your hands. What's going on with that? Listen to what Macintosh and Spurgeon said. The commandments were to be sovereign over individual Israelites. They were to serve as constraints or as guides on their hands and as mental checks upon their thinking. The purpose of using such symbolism was to connect God's law with everyday routine matters of life. Nothing was to be considered outside the scope of his authority. Um, Spurgeon says, you shall see by them, you shall see with them, you shall see through them. You wouldn't look at your wife. Can you imagine? Let's, let's say you had a verse that said, um, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Can you imagine looking through that at your wife and yelling at her? Well, we would do it anyway. We do it. But the idea is that you've got to get, you've got to look through God's word, past it as you look at people. If you're going to go do your work, your hands, which are bound with the word of God, are going to be doing the work. That was what God was after with Israel. Merrill says, the form of the commandment is in any case most significant. After ordering that the covenant commandments be worn on the person of the faithful Israelite, Moses expanded the sphere of the covenant claim to then the house, verse 9, and then to the village. In this manner, the person and his entire family and community became identified as the people of the Lord whose word was everywhere. Uh, Look at verse 9. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So you leave your house, leave your property to go out into whatever it is you're going to do, to go to the field and work, to go visit other people. The last thing you would see is you left your property was the word of God. You've been out all day doing whatever it is you do. You come back to your house. You enter in, if you're an Israelite, that's the first thing you see as you step back into your home. The word of God. This is what God intended. Now, I'm not going to walk you through everything again from the New Testament teaching on on this because we covered a lot of this last time, but I want to remind you because we are not Israelites. And so what we need to see is how this God has represented himself forward in the pages of the Bible so that we can find out how we should live here. Right? Certainly there is some encouragement and application that we can derive from here carefully, but we want to look particularly at where we live today. So I'm going to remind you of a few things from the New Testament. I'm just going to summarize each of these main bullet points. You, do you remember the impact of one person's faith on the entire household? Do you remember this? Um, in all of these examples, in Acts 10 it was Cornelius, in Acts 16 it was Lydia, and then it was also the Philippian jailer. Do you remember that? What happened? God got the entire household by getting one. By getting one. Uh, In the early church, just as one person's interaction with the gospel made a profound impact on their entire household, it's, it's like it was supposed to be in the Old Testament, in a sense. That one man's heart, impacted by the word of God, was to go into his home and make a huge impact. We actually see that worked out in the gospel as God saves people in the New Testament. Do you remember the the attack on the home? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, there are weak women uh, who are being enticed by false teachers. And in Titus chapter 1, there are uh, false teachers who are upsetting entire households. Do you remember that? There's going to be a constant attack on the home in the New Testament era that we are in or in the, the, the church era. 
And notice that the attack on the family, it, didn't, it doesn't come from the surrounding pagan world. Pagans aren't coming in those two chapters in 2 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. It's not pagans who are coming to the house to break the house down uh, spiritually. It's false teachers, religious people close to the church, maybe even within the church, who are coming and breaking down households. So, guys, this is the point again. Where are the men who must take ownership and responsibility and, and provide watch care over their households? That means that you must be able to understand doctrine so that you can sniff out false doctrine when your wife is reading it or when your children are hearing it at school. You need to know it so that you can provide protection. The family and the home, though, can become an obstacle to the gospel. Do you remember this? In Matthew chapter 10, we looked at the fact that uh, Jesus said, I, I, I did not bring a peace, come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. And he said that even a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And he said, you can't love your father and you can't love your mother more than you love me. Do you remember that? And so this is Jesus saying these things. Okay? This is not some man or follower of Jesus saying these things. These are Jesus saying these things. Um, we can't conclude from the, the high emphasis on the need to care for your family. You can't emphasize it so much that you would set the family higher than it's supposed to be. And this is where a lot of Christians go wrong. They set the family higher than they should. The gospel and fidelity and faithfulness to the gospel, that is always above your family. Always above your family. The gospel, your fidelity to the gospel, it must come face to face with your family. Your family needs to come face to face with your fidelity to the gospel. And if your family rejects you, your family is divided for the time being. You don't set the gospel aside or water it down so that your family can get back together. You don't. You trust God that as you are living a humble life and not being the, the offensive one, but letting the gospel be the offensive thing. You trust God that perhaps in time your family might be reunited, but now reunited in a much better way, reunited under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Your family is under the gospel. Jesus made that clear through his teaching. Remember this? Leading a wife requires a strong grasp on the gospel. Ephesians 5, why? Because husbands are supposed to love their wives like Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He gave himself up for her. Guys, you need to study the cross from as many different angles as you possibly can because your love for your wife is dependent on it. It's fueled by it. It's modeled for you in it. You remember the New Testament model of marriage? Priscilla and Aquila? Or, yeah, Priscilla and Aquila. And then you can remember the qualifications. And we're going to get to this in Discipline 4. Go to 1 Timothy 3. I want to end with this. Have you, have you ever asked yourself this question, guys? How do elders come about in a church? I, have you always, I, I guess, is it one of those things that maybe, um, well, it just happens. It just happens. You know, guys grow up, they become mature, and, and they, I guess they become elders. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. Watch this. The husband of one wife, a one-woman man. There's your household. 
But that's not all. Drop down to verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a, if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? You can't afford to ignore your household just for your own sake. But you know what? The church can't afford for you to do this either. Can't. Where do you think elders come from? I'll tell you where elders come from. They come from this. They come from this. You labor among men and you labor among men and you labor in each other's lives with the gospel and with shepherding your heart, shepherd your home, step into the lives of others with the gospel. You labor and we labor and we labor and some of you will become elders in time. If we do nothing, we're just hoping it's going to happen. And you know what? God loves his church. It will happen. He'll raise up some. He doesn't need build to do it. But I want to participate with him. The elders of this church want to participate with what he's doing. We're setting these things out in front of you so that you will be a godly man. But we are thinking about Grace Bible Church a generation from now. You guys need to be the men. Your sons need to be the men. If we do nothing, what, we're just hoping that's going to happen on its own. We want to see in you guys, let me back up. God wants to see in you a well-engraved pattern in your life of shepherd your heart, shepherd your home, care for people with the gospel. He wants to see that. We want to labor in conjunction with that. We want to see that for your sake, for your sake. What a blessed and happy life that will be. We also want to see elders in this church beyond us. There's already not enough elders. We need more. We can't shepherd the way that we want to shepherd. Okay? So set your sights on what God is setting his sights on and let him do with your life what he wants to do with your life. Right? Yeah. Uh, can I just ask a question? Please. As I... So when I'm reading Deuteronomy 6, and both of these questions have to do with just understanding what I'm reading, I guess. But we've talked about that that God saw our predicament that we need a new heart. Yeah. But in Deuteronomy 6, these people must have had some ability to love God as he was, but they didn't have the new heart yet, right? Um, but they must well, have had some question. capability. I mean, you have a Simeon who obviously loved God under kind of an old covenant um, Right. To, we know that what is promised here is a new creation. Right? Um, at Pentecost it becomes clear a new creation has come. Back here, by the nature of what a sinner is in terms of total depravity, Back here, there is no hope for a sinner to be saved apart from regeneration. And I think Jesus confirms this with Nicodemus. He tells an old covenant believer, professing believer, you must be born again. So I, and he, I think he appeals to Ezekiel um, to, to help him understand. So I think there was regeneration they had to be born again. Mm -hmm. How could they not be? Now, 
anytime you give rules, and we know Paul helps us with this, that why was the law given? These things shall be on your heart. Okay, I'll, I'll try. I'll try. And you try to do the things you try to do. Just can't, I can't do them. Well, what's the law doing? Exactly what it's supposed to do. In one sense, to convict you of your sin. You, do, you can't do that. So what would the Mosaic Covenant do with one who is under this covenant? It would highlight, as they tried to do these things, maybe without believing, they would try to do these things and it would highlight, I can't do them. And God would say, and thus we come back to my Abrahamic covenant, trust me, and you shall be regenerated, born again, as Jesus would say. And is that the equivalent of a new heart then? Um, what I would want to do is I would want to use biblical terminology, and I don't think the Bible necessarily does that. Mm-hmm. It announces in the new covenant that a new heart is coming, right? So what is it back here? I, I'm not prepared to say Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 is retroactive back to here, but I am prepared to say it has to be something very similar. One other question. Just in trying to understand where, where is continuity from the beginning? You know, we always are supposed to love God. Yes. Um, that goes all the way across the whole spectrum, but what about, you know, where there's the verse that says... Uh, Something like I, I'm going to paraphrase, but anything not done by faith is is sin. Or, yeah, it's a New Testament. Verse, but, yeah. So, in other words, has faith been all across the spectrum? In fact, can we even love God other than through faith? No, so, that's a great question. Um, by by the fifteenth chapter of Genesis, you know that it is by faith because it actually says it is. Um, Abraham believed. God and he reckoned it as righteousness. It actually says that by the 15th chapter of our Bible. So faith has been since, I think, Genesis 3 with the curses and the promises given by God to the woman and to Adam, that they have to trust God at that point that what he said is going to be true. There will be a seed of mine who will come. The woman would have to realize and they were in a perpetual need of trusting God at that point on. I think that was continuous. Josh? Yeah, in Hebrews 11, um, the writer yeah. of Hebrews doesn't start with Abraham to demonstrate heroes of faith. He starts with Abraham. Great example. You, have, you affirmed much better what I was just saying by actually appealing to mm-hmm. Hebrews 11. Well done. We'll let that table have one marking. <laughs> I'll just still bring them back up to zero. Yeah. <laughs> but you're still under the waterline, bud. <laughs> God is by grace, but it's all works here, okay? Um, yeah, good question. Well, we're going to talk more about this kind of stuff as we go through the year, especially when we get to the hermeneutics at the end. We're going to talk, and especially in regards to Mosaic Law, we'll have a whole lesson on that. Um, I spent about three years of my life trying to figure that all out. Um, wrote a little paper on it, so we'll uh, we'll talk about that some more, okay? But um, you guys, um, I just want you to encourage you. Your heart, your heart, your heart, and the Word of God. Work now to establish a pattern and a discipline in your life. I wish I would have heard much earlier on in my life these things. I was already a pastor when when it started to. I was an elder of a church when I started to hear these things and think about these things in this way. I loved God before I heard these things. I, I loved his word, but I wasn't, 
focused in like I think I needed to be. You guys are at a place in your life, it's never too late. It's never too late. Start where you're at, and, and it's going to be a process. It's going to be a process. It's not a one-time event that you're automatically there. Labor and fight for it, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, will you take these men and will you equip them for your purposes and what you want to accomplish in their lives, Father? And we know that because you love the church, because you purchased the church with your son's blood, that you're not just thinking about these men in isolation as individuals, but that you're also thinking about your church and that there need to be men leading the body of Christ to come and perhaps even new bodies of Christ that will come into existence as we, Lord willing, plant churches or as missionaries get sent out. So God, please work in the lives of these men. Help them to relinquish their lives, to take a white-knuckled grip off of their lives and saying and thinking that they've got things figured out where they're going to go and the kind of men they're going to be. Lord, let them put their lives in your hands so that you can make them into the kind of men you desire them to be. Lord, we're in great need of you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for the cleansing that is ours through confession of sin. Thank you for hope, for obedience, because of what you have accomplished in us through Jesus by causing us to be born again. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming, guys.